Jesus made it very clear that a decision to follow was a decision to die, to surrender everything to him. And so Jesus turns to the crowd, and he turns to you and me, and he asks the one question that will ultimately define our lives. Are you a fan or a follower? Well, if you haven't been with us uh, for the last few weeks, we have been in a series uh, called N- Not a Fan. We've been discussing the differences between those who are followers of Jesus Christ and those who we could describe as fans, or what early on we defined as enthusiastic admirers, those who are desperately interested in the benefits, but not necessarily signing up for the, for the call to follow Christ and what that looks like. And so I hope it's been challenging as we kind of head down the home stretch of this series. Now, we're going to start off with a little uh, multiple choice uh, this morning, okay? Uh, if you had to choose, here, here's some choices you can make. If you had to choose uh, between a box spring mattress and a Tempur-Pedic, uh, which one would you choose? Tempur-Pedic, right? I mean, what other bed in the country can you jump on and, and glasses don't fall over, right? But every time I see that commercial... I'm thinking, i got to have that. What about having to choose between... Uh, now, don't get any visual in your mind, okay? This is going to ruin the moment. What about having to choose between your church clothes and your jammies right now, right? Yeah, listen, as soon as I get home, right to my jammies, every Sunday, if I can. If you could choose between a weekend at a resort or spa clinic, or a night camping in your mother-in-law's backyard with three kids and no air mattress, hypothetically... What would you choose? We all know the answer. Those are loaded questions, right? We all know the answers to those things. But there's a, there's a common denominator amongst all of those. And the common denominator is the choice of comfort. And given the chance, if, if it were option A and option B and we had just total chance, we would most of the time, if we're honest this morning, we would choose comfort. In all of our society, it places an incredibly high value on this quality of life that we have defined as comfort. Now, there's a lot of money to be made on products uh, that enhance comfort. Uh, think of some things, memory foam for your bed, lazy boys for your living room, body pillows, snuggies. By the way, if you own a camouflage snuggie, I've seen those recently, you're not welcome here. I just want to share that this morning. I went to my notes, I just felt led to share that. And so on top of that, there are shows out that actually uh, draw us in and exploit our love for comfort. How, how many of you have ever seen the show? It's a great show. I love to watch it. Have you ever seen the show Dirty Jobs? Anybody seen that show? Yes. And we look at that show and, and uh, we, we sit in our comfortable uh, padded seating and we, we look at the people doing those incredibly uncomfortable jobs and we laugh or we wince or internally we rejoice that God has not called us into that profession, whatever we're watching, uh, all the while grateful for it. But there's a danger Despite all the fascination with comfort in our society, there is a danger uh, in loving comfort too much. And I don't mean on just on putting on some extra pounds watching TV. It seems that we've continued to put more and more of an emphasis on comfort. We've marketed it. We've embraced it as a society. And if we're not careful, our faith will follow suit. That's kind of been the crux of what this series is all about, about leaving that comfortable life of a fan and receiving all the benefits but none of the sacrifice and taking steps and moving towards being a totally, completely committed follower of Jesus Christ. And we've come to, as Christians, to embrace comfort. There's certainly nothing sinful about it, but it can't allow us to drift and 
And we come in and if the temperature's not right, we hear about it. And if someone is sitting in our seat, it makes us uncomfortable. And all the time, if we're not careful, we'll allow this uh, fascination this, and this obsession with comfort drift into our teaching. And then all of a sudden, what used to be a challenging, take up your cross and follow me kind of invitation says, sit back and enjoy the benefits and here's ten ways to have a happy life. Now, so many times that is uh, uh, filtered into our preaching now in our churches and, and often there is little distinction between self-help and Scripture and there's often this mix of it. And uh, the reality is this, uh, this type of preaching had this uh, obsession with comfort-driven faith, has produced a new term that I heard about three years ago that describes uh, the state of what so many of our churches have kind of drifted into in the content of our teaching if we really want to draw a crowd. Now, it's a mouthful, uh, so I'll say it really slow, and then I'll kind of unpack it for you a little bit. Here's what they've described it as, uh, what's drifted into our churches and our teaching. Uh, They've called a new, new system of belief called moral therapeutic deism. Can you say that three times really fast? Moral therapeutic deism, right? Now, let me tell you what this is. Now, now John Ortberg, who our, our 2012 uh, book of the year that we picked, uh, The Life You've Always Won, he describes this uh, belief system on a past blog, uh, and he said this. That the title of the blog was this, The Most Popular Religion in America. He said it's a phrase that was actually coined in a book written in 2005 by Christian Smith, who is a sociologist at Notre Dame. And so here's what I quote uh, that I wrote down about this. According to Smith, the primary expression of faith in our day, at least for young adults, uh, is what he calls moral therapeutic deism. And he says this religion is characterized by five beliefs. And here they are. He said there is a God who created earth and watches over it. Number two, God wants people to be nice, fair, and good. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about yourself. Number four, God doesn't need to be involved in your life except when there's a problem that needs, I love what he says here, there's a problem that needs celestial performance enhancement. And he said, number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Is, is that not the, the age that we live in and in my generation and the generation beneath me? Is that not the thought process that consumes them and the belief system? They said, you know what, these kind of things and those teachings there, they don't line up with that. So I'm going to push those to the side or I'm going to go to a church and find a church that will uh, meet those felt needs. And I'm going to address those kinds of things. And Ortberg, uh, later on the blog, says this. He said, this is a religion that is far more about comfort and individualism and conformity than it is about meaning, calling and sacrifice. What makes it particularly challenging is that it is not offered through a new MTD movement or denomination is actually catching on and being practiced in churches where leaders think of ourselves as historically Christian. Then he makes these things. He says, but it cannot sustain a life. It cannot build a community. And it cannot call people to take up a cross. Now compare that to the theme verse of our Not a Fan series, which has been Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And Jesus said, if anyone, open invitation, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And so what do comfort-craving fans do with something like the cross? I mean, uh, it's pretty hard to avoid the cross when you're a Christian, right? It's pretty hard to, to kind of take that out of there and go, you know what, that, that's, a, well, that's an offensive message, or that, that's a high cost, or that's not incredibly marketable, so let's just push that to the side, and let's leave the cross in the background, and let it show up on Easter or some other kind of special day. But other than that, it's not incredibly marketable, this whole idea of denying yourself. 
So we just kind of shove that thing to the background because if we're honest, the cross is a tough sell. And we need to be out right, selling the gospel and getting bigger crowds and drawing people. And, uh, and it, listen, the cross isn't great for public relations for our faith, right? But the problem is this, is that in our efforts to want more and more people to come to Jesus, we have watered down the gospel and made Christianity as, as attractive and as appealing as possible. But what have we sacrificed in return is the real question. What's this, this clip this morning. Sometimes in an effort to get as many people as possible to follow Jesus, I have, with good intentions, made following him sound as attractive, as appealing as possible. So I've talked a lot about the unconditional joy, the peace that passes understanding, the grace and mercy that frees us from all of our guilt and shame. Those things are true and they are beautiful and they should be spoken of often. But I've realized that I have been guilty of selling Jesus. Of emphasizing only the parts about Jesus that I thought people would like. Imagine it this way. Imagine if my oldest daughter grows up and goes to college and after a number of years isn't married, but she really wants to be. And so I decide to help the process along. I take out an ad in the newspaper and I put up a billboard sign and print up t-shirts begging someone to come and choose her. Wouldn't that cheapen who she is? Wouldn't that make it seem like they were doing her a favor? I would never do that. If you want to come and get to know her, you better come with everything you've got. Or I'll send you packing. Now, how often do we do the same thing to the message of Jesus? As attractive as possible, as marketable as possible. That no demands, that no surrendering your life, not, nothing like that that would cause someone to, to push back and go, that's too much. And what we've done is we've created a legion of fans, but very few followers so many times in our culture. Well, this morning I want to talk about the comfortable cross, and I want to use a passage that's incredibly important in understanding a right perspective about the cross and its message and its uh, perspective, and that's 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me there this morning, or you can, uh, we'll put the verses up on the screen if you don't have a Bible today. And so, uh, now this morning, there's not going to be an outline, there's not going to be lots of points. And this morning, uh, I'm only going to make one central point this morning. I hope you walk away and wonder, was there, was there any point at all, right? It's like the president, I heard a story one time, one of our earliest presidents, he went to church and, and he went there and, and he came home and his wife, uh, his wife did what wives do, his wife wanted detail. Ladies, why do you do that? I just, I just want to know this one, right? And so she went and he came back and, and said, uh, what, was, what was the church about? What did the pastor preach about? He said, the minister preached about sin. Now, it's a guy that's a, a totally sufficient answer, but not for a woman, right? Well, what did he say about sin? To which he turned around and said, I'm pretty sure he was against it and then retreated to a study, right? Well, I hope this morning you walk away and have a little broader uh, understanding of what the cross is about. 
uh, from spending some time, and not only what the cross is about, but what it calls us to do. An incredible powerhouse of life when we begin to identify with the cross instead of pushing it back to embarrassment because it's not incredibly marketable in our culture today. First Corinthians chapter 1. Let's look beginning in verse 18. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul is writing here and he's talking about how the, how the world views the cross. How degrading it is or how embarrassing it is or how unmarked or how, how, how cruel and, and brutal it is. And in describing that, he says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They look at it in their dying sinful state and they look at the simplicity of the cross and the, the offer of grace. They look at it, it's just total foolishness, rejecting it over despite while dying. It's foolishness, they would say. And he says, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, this is something crucial to understand. Your understanding about the cross, what we're going to talk about this morning, it's crucial to understand that, that those uh, who were living in the first century, the cross uh, was an incredible, it was the ultimate symbol of weakness. And for many of the gospel that, that God came to earth in the form of a man, it just it seems foolish to them. It's too simplistic. Now, here's the deal. We look at the cross and it's a little more appealing to us today, right? And, and we, we market it. I mean, sometimes that those of us who, you know, who do that, we, we, we wear the shirts and we've got hats and, and necklaces and those kind of things. But if a first century Jew were to come into a church building and see an illuminated cross up on the building anywhere, they would have thought that we were sick. And they would have thought, are you serious? So fast forward some centuries, it would be the equivalent of this. It would be walking in and coming up and I saw you and I said, What's a, that's a beautiful necklace. I can't exactly tell what's, what's hanging on. What is that pendant? And he said, oh, it's a guillotine. Or walking up and saying, oh, I, I love those earrings. Now, the guy, I would never say that, but let's just pretend, right? I love those. What are those? They're electric chairs. You think, well, that was sick. Listen, for a first century Jew, you know what they would have said if we were hanging up the cross? They would have said, that, that is sick. What is wrong with that? That is the ultimate symbol of weakness. So I think God's point, God is looking at the cross, all the humility, and looking from human perspective what is foolishness. And God says, hey, here's something that carries no honor, no glory, and I'm going to find the least likely symbol for love and for life, and I'm going to use that to display my glory through for all of eternity. God says, watch this. Something that you've called weak, I've called it powerful. Something that you've said is the ultimate piece of humility. It alone can change. It is the power of God unto salvation. Look down at verse 22 in chapter 1. 
It says, for Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block into the Greeks, foolishness. And who else but God could take a cross that represented defeat and turn it into a symbol of victory? Who else but God could take a cross that represented guilt and turn it into the symbol for grace? Who else but God could take a cross that represented condemnation and turn it into a symbol of freedom? Who else but God could take a cross that represented pain and suffering and turn it into a symbol of healing and hope? Who else but our God could take something that represented death and turn it into the ultimate symbol for life? For it alone is the power of God unto salvation. Who else... But God could do that. No one else could, is the answer. But He can. And what seems like the ultimate picture of weakness is reality, the ultimate moment of God's strength. Now, those are some theological truths. And those are some things that should stir you up inside. And what God's done, recognizing God's ability to take something that they viewed as weakness and turn it into a symbol of life and healing and power. And so what about all those theologians? What does that have to apply to me? What, what does that message have to do with me this morning? Well, here it is. And, and this is the one point for the whole message. This is the central theme of what we're talking about this morning. So don't, don't lose this one. Lead. Here it is. It's the only thing you need to really remember this morning. What God did for the cross, He can do for you. What God did for the cross in taking something that was the ultimate symbol of weakness... And making the ultimate soul power, God can do the same thing in your life. And here's the condition, if you will let Him. But so many times that, that never happens in our lives and no one looks at our lives and sees the power of the cross or the power of God on us because we're so busy trying to market our strengths and, and hide our weaknesses that the glory of God can never shine through our lives. No one can ever look at our lives and say, oh, but it's the, the thing of weakness that God's used for incredible power. So when you're the weakest, you're exactly where you need to be for God to be the strongest. Look at verse 27 in chapter 1. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world. Now I want you to look around this morning at the people around you. Can I tell you that the people you're looking at right now have done some pretty foolish things this week? Can I tell you that they're going to do some continued foolish things? And can I tell you that in all of our education, all of our sophistication, and all of our uh, prosperity, and all of those things, that the, when the bottom line is when you compare us to the wisdom of God, you have no, no response left but to look at our lives and go, that is a, that is a foolishness. It's foolishness. And so God chose the cross, not in spite of its weakness. God chose the cross because of its weakness. And God will do the same thing in your life if you'll let Him, if you'll be used of Him, if you'll surrender yourself and say, God, however you want to use me, however humble I have to get, however weak I have to become, God, whatever it takes, because I'm, I'm no longer interested in a comfortable cross that fans embrace. Think, think about this. You realize that all throughout the Scripture, it is the testimony of God using foolish and weak people for an incredible display of His glory. I mean, all over the Bible you see that. Think about this. Listen to these examples of that. Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Joseph was humiliated. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor. Samson was proud. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair. Elijah was depressed and suicidal. Jeremiah was depressed. Jonah was disobedient. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric to say the least. What do you do for a living? I walk around in a camel skirt and I eat locusts, right? 
Peter was impulsive and hot-tempered. Martha worried a lot. The Samaritan woman had several failed marriages. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas had doubts. Paul had poor health. Timothy was timid. And Brad's still carrying some holiday weight. I mean, God uses people over and over, right? Every year, it's Arbor Day that trips me up. Every single year. And the point is this, God looks down at us, and in all the weaknesses, and in all the inadequacies, and in all the insecurities, and God just says, hey, if you'd own those things and recognize that's who you are, then, and only then, I can display my power through you. And when people see what I'm doing in your life, no one can look at your life and go, well, of course, they're so smart, they're so savvy, they're so suave, they're so attractive. What no, they would look at your life and say, it has to be the power of God on their life. You know what happens, why that never happens sometimes in their life? It's because we're so consumed with trying to market our we our strengths and hide our weaknesses. But hear me this morning, if you let him, if you embrace the cross, then God will do for your life what he did for the cross, something that is a symbol of weakness and turn into a display of his power. And so uh now here's this is be honest this morning. I don't know anyone in the flesh who naturally delights in their weaknesses. It's just not, it really is, it's a supernatural thing. In fact, most of us go to great lengths to disguise our weaknesses, don't we? <laughs> you ever been on a job interview? The worst question ever. Go into, tell us about your skill sets and your experiences. And, you know, yada, yada. What, are your, what, what is your greatest weakness? And how do you answer that? Because if you tell them the truth, you're not getting hired, right? I mean, you don't say, well, I, uh... You know, now that you ask that, I'm, I am never on time. I, I constantly procrastinate. I find that I'm inherently incredibly lazy and slothful. You know, I don't know if this is going to impact the interview or not, but, but I, I'm not totally sure I know how to turn a computer on. I cannot be trusted with anyone else's money. You don't say those things if you want the job, right? You know what we normally do? Now, you don't want to come off as arrogant. Well, I don't have any. And so what do you say? Well, you try to come up with a weakness that really sounds like a strength. See if this sounds familiar. What's your greatest weakness? Well, I can be a little bit of a perfectionist. Or I, I, I tend to be a workaholic. Now, I remember when I was being interviewed to uh, become the pastor here. And believe it or not, uh, this week it's been two, two years. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And it's went by so fast and parts of it are, t- I don't even remember parts of it. And, uh, but parts of it I remember very distinctly. And I remember uh, the search team had reduced their criterion to an acronym called CALM. C-A-L-M. Here's what it stood for. These were the skill sets needed by the pastor to, to lead transition in the church, okay? And uh, so, so here's what they said. Uh, CALM stands for Communicate, Administrate, Lead, and Minister. Now, now, let's just be honest. Which of those, as a pastor interviewing the search team, is okay to go, I'm not good at that. <laughs> I can lead, and I can administrate, and I can care for people, but I can't communicate worth a lick. Hire me, right? Or I, I, can, uh, I can lead, and I can administrate, and I can preach the stars down. But don't call me if you need minister to in a crisis. That's not me. I'm not your guy. 
I think I told them, they said, what was your greatest weakness? I think I said, you know, I'm really a perfectionistic workaholic, and I'm, I'm working on it now. I think God's working through me. But, you know, why, why do we do that? It's because in our economy, weakness isn't strength. Strength is strength, and weakness is weakness. There are 2,000 self-help books published every single year that communicate one message. You can do it. The strength is inside of you. You have what it takes. Look down deep inside of you, and the strength is already in there, and you can do it. You know what the message of the cross is? Hey, you can't do it. But if you come to that place and admit that and embrace your weakness, then guess what? God working in and through you, He can do it. And then at the end of that, He alone gets all the glory. And if you come to that place in what God did for the cross, taking something that was a picture of weakness and displaying His strength, God will do the same thing for your life if you let Him. I was joking with someone this past week about something that every, every parent, if you have more than one child, you're going to identify with this. Uh, how, is, how is this possible? I've got four kids. Uh, how is this possible that four kids from the same DNA raised in the same house are four co- totally, completely different people? Different personalities, different, different skill sets. And uh, so one of my kids are, is really laid back and told, listen, whatever you want to do for me, I'm, I'm fine with that, right? You want to do that for me? That's a good idea. I'm for it. So my kids are not that way, independent. Now, Ella, our four-year-old, is a mixture of both. Sometimes she really wants to do her own kind of thing. And then uh, I remember one time early on, sometimes she's fine with people doing things for her, uh, so much to the point that when I first got here, I'd been here a few months, someone came up and said, is there something wrong with your little girl's legs? And I said, what do you mean? Well, I never see her walking. People are always carrying her. Pick me up? Great. Well, I remember uh, the last vacation when she had her own, this, this little uh, rolling Dora suitcase, right? It's really mine, but I was embarrassed. I said, oh, you, you carry that. And so we're getting out of the car. We've been in the car a long time. It was late. And uh, she, you know, she was, I, that's fine. I, I'm the big girl. I want to carry it. But it's late. And so I go to grab it. And I'm going to carry it in for it and, you know, be the dad and help her out. And, and at first she's like, no, I'm going to carry it. But then she was tired. And then she said, Dad, it's okay if you want to carry it. And so I pick it up. And we're getting close to the hotel. And you know what happens? She was so generous. She was going to let me carry her, too. And so I did. I scooped her up and I, I carried her in. And, and she admitted her weakness. And she tapped into my strength. And I carried her forward. You see the point I'm making? That you and I need to learn a lesson from my, at that time, three-year-old. That if we'll just come to the place and recognize I'm not all that. And do a little more of this. Then God will display His power through us. But it all comes we're coming to the place of admitting and embracing weaknesses, recognizing that because of the cross, it makes it clear that when I am weak, then alone he is strong. And that's a test for followers this morning. It's a test for followers. Will we, like Christ before us, trust God enough to, to, to embrace our weaknesses, that God, this is weak and I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed of this, but I'm going to trust you enough that if I embrace that weakness, you're going to show your power in that situation. So many times we're afraid to let go of our our need for comfort or our need to control or our need to to glory in our strengths or our accomplishments or our title or our resume or our paycheck or our trophies or our co-workers' approval or whatever it is that keeps us from identifying with the weakness of the cross. So many times we never move past that point. Allow ourselves into a position of embracing weakness and embracing the cross. 
leaving behind all the famed images of strength so that the power of God can shine through our lives for those who are watching. You have to quit posing. You quit playing church. You can no longer be consumed about what people think about you. One of the phrases that's been coined in recent years by many churches is no perfect people allowed. I'm, I'm grateful for that message. Hear me. I'm grateful for that message of grace. But you know what else the message of the cross tells me? That if I really want to see the power of God unleashed in my life and in my church, it says not only no perfect people allowed, the cross says no plastic people allowed either. Putting on strong faces, uh, scared to death to admit weakness in a situation so God's power can shine through. No perfect people out. No plastic people out either. It's going to cost you some comfort to live as a follower of Jesus Christ. But let me remind you this morning in closing. That only one life. Yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord to meet and stand before His judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, this still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding my selfish aims to leave. And only that God's holy will to cleave. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in His will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. God would tempt me sore when Satan would a victory score. When self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has burned out for thee. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I invite you to bow your heads this morning.